0: Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause. Joining us today is a very special guest, Russell Nolte. Russell is a USA Today bestselling author, publisher, and consultant. He's written over 18 novels, comics, and more, including novels such as Katrina Hates the Dead and Nicobod Jones, and self-development guides for creatives like How to Become a Successful Author. Russell, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So tell me, what's your secret being able to have time to write as much as you do publish and also consult?
1: So it's all about time management. I'm very productive. I would consider myself a hyperproductive person, but mainly the thing is that everything is moving to one point. So I read The One Thing by Patrick Keeler, I think it really resonated with me. Not enough to remember his name, the (laughs) author's name, but I really loved the idea that like the big domino where there's one thing that is going to move you to the next level and everything needs to be pushing towards it from little to big to bigger to bigger to biggest. And so... I really try to think about that. I really have cut out a ton of fat in my life. Podcasts that I go on and the the marketing that I do, I'm all really trying to push towards one objective and everything that's under it is going to that singular objective. So my publishing company, Wannabe Press, is putting out most of my fiction and then The Complete Creative is sort of the ancillary byproduct of that. It is basically everything that I've learned building Wannabe Press. So there's no waste entrepreneurs have so much waste in their life. They're going a hundred different ways. They never want to commit to one thing. They always have like 78 projects going on and don't do any of those things. I mean, I have multiple projects going on and I'm building on top of it, but everything that I'm doing is building and building and building on the things that came before it so that I can keep using the assets that I've already built and everything gets exponentially less complicated and easier the more times you go back to that same well. I'm sure at one point, you
0: were probably at that point of doing too many things, right? Because I think we all experienced that. What did you do as you like read the one thing? And as you made your pivot to decide what that like end vision was versus all the different activities you were doing? And were there any projects that maybe didn't align to that that you had trouble letting go of?
1: Sure. So I was kind of following the one thing already. And after I read the four hour work week, I was like, Oh, I already do all of these things. It just like Mm -hmm. puts a name to it so people can get behind it. So I was already doing this uh, in a lot of ways. My big domino and all of this stuff was, I had these numbers that I was aiming towards. The hardest part is cutting everything. But the truth is that I value my time. And like, don't want to work like I want to do the things that I want to do when I want to do them and like I want to work a little bit and then I want to like go and take a nap and I don't want to be working 20 hours a day so I had to have a come to Jesus moment with myself and say <laughs> like look do you want to keep working 20 hours a day on all of these projects that like aren't bringing you anywhere or do you want to focus on the projects that are bringing 90% of the revenue there's a lot of projects that I would make a lot of things that I would write a lot of things that I would do that like just weren't bringing return but they were costing me a lot of time and I would always say yes to them. I would say yes to them so often. And they were accounting for 10, 20, 30% of my week and bringing around two, three, 4% of my returns, not just the returns of money, but returns of audience building and all of those things. So I'll give you an example. Like right now I am doing this podcast blitz. I've done over 60 podcasts in the past three months. I'm trying to figure out which ones work and which ones don't. I'm trying to figure out like what the thing is that I'm best at talking about, the topics that are like really resonating with me and with the host. And so I can pare down all of the things that are not working. I did a lot of virtual summits before and I've been talking about virtual summits and I realized like, and literally in the last hour, I was like, Oh, I hate talking about this stuff. Like I'm just going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop putting it on my bio. I'm going to stop saying that I talk about this thing because I don't talk about basically how to 10 X your productivity, how to grow your audience and how to use crowdfunding. Like those are the three main areas that I talk about. I also mm-hmm. sometimes talk about my creating stuff and the ones I like best are when I'm talking about like creating my universes and like most of the things I talk about are like the three business topics. And I really, they're the thing, three things that I mastered. I've mastered productivity. I mastered building a mailing list and like building an audience that will buy from you. And I mastered crowdfunding and the rest of it. Do I want to become an expert at virtual summits? God, no, I do not. I have them as part of my business, as part of my growing an audience toolkit, but like, I do not want to be the guy who's doing virtual summits for people. That sounds horrible. The easiest thing to do is like set yourself a time limit and say, I'm going to do 100 shows in the next three years. I'm going to go on 100 podcasts in the next few months. I'm going to do this thing. And instead of it taking me five years to do this part, I'm going to condense that into like three months. I love the thought exercise. What would it mean if you did 10 years of work in the next year? In order to be an expert, you basically need 10 years of work, 10,000 hours or whatever that thing is, is roughly 10 years of work. What would it look like if I became an expert on this thing in the next six months. I would have to like kill myself for a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then I would know. I remember I did 100 episodes of my podcast in about eight months. Then I slowed down and I was like, okay, like this is what my podcast is about. It's about this, that, and the other thing. And like, I've done a hundred episodes and now I know. Now I've done so many podcast guesting that I can kind of do it in my sleep. I know like the five topics that I'm going to be talking about. One of them is productivity. All of those things allow you to have narrow focus and cut away things that don't work. But, you know, I'm a writer most of my work is in writing like that's what i like doing like i love connecting with people like you and, and fans and, and creators and other people but i am here to write books in that i could either create new universes or go with universes that are already written and that, that are already popular and already successful and what do i do would i rather build something from scratch and have to build it literally from nothing or would i rather continue on with something that has been successful and try and figure out new ways and new avenues to make it more successful Like Mm -hmm. it makes more sense if I love writing and I love the universe to write in that universe that I already have, because then there's already people that like it, that want more information about it. And then I just have to keep people's interest in that universe. But, But the universe itself is doing its own work. Like the complete creative is a thing that I've now talked about on hundreds of podcasts and hundreds of hours and hundreds of places. It's doing its own work. Now, I can either push forward all of those things that are already propagating or start new things. And when you only want to do stuff for five hours a day, it really like cuts the amount of bullshit that you're willing to do. I'm willing to do stuff that will move me forward and not move me sideways. There are some projects that you end up like being very attached to or heartfelt to. But when it comes Mm -hmm. to releasing those projects, you realize there's no chance for it to succeed. I'm just going to launch it and like spend a week and then it'll be gone because like it has not made me money. And unless it actually Hmm. like starts generating its own revenue, then I will put money into it. But otherwise, like I just want it to break even or maybe do a little bit better than break even. And then like I'm on to the things that are actually making me money. I think you have to be ruthless like that. Like you have to be ruthless to your career. You have to be ruthless to the causes you support. You have to be ruthless to all of that stuff because like you're not getting any more time back. You get a finite amount of time and you can kind of extend it by eating healthy and such. I've Plenty of 40 year olds who are in perfect health have their heart explode on them. And so you're pretty much given the time you're given and you can make more money. You can make more projects, but you'll never make more time. So I just interviewed someone who's done like 200 comics in like his years on life. And I was like, that's too many. He's like, that's the <laughs> thing I love. And I was like, I understand that. I'm glad you're doing the thing that you love. The thing I love is like not working. Like that's like, like being yeah. with my wife and like going places and like doing stuff. And the, the writing is a compulsion and like the storytelling is nice. I love once the story has been told and now it can be enjoyed by people.
0: That speaks so true in like the marketing world too. You're not marketing to sell yourself and your product. You're marketing to help someone else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's the Gary V fallacy. People come into entrepreneurship and the first person they smack right into is Gary V. And Gary V tells them hustle all the time, never Mm -hmm. sleep, be on every platform, And first thing that you hear when you're a little baby entrepreneur is you got to be hustling all day, every day, every single minute of every day. And if you ever stop, you're like, you should feel guilty. It's the worst advice a human being could ever give. But on some level, like you do have to work harder at the beginning of your career. But the minute you reach velocity, Gary Vee's teachings like really suck. They're the worst because all they're telling you is to keep hustling constantly, like forever. And Mm -hmm. I don't actually think that's what Gary Vee is saying. If you actually listened to him or if he sat down, he would actually say like, yes, I think you should work 20 hours a day even when you're making a million dollars. Maybe he will. I mean, I know he works very hard. That is not my idea of success. My idea of success is when you can stop doing all of those things and the wheels still work. God, who wants to be running a multi-million dollar company when they're in their 50s? Like, I don't understand that human. Like, for me, I want to be doing the things I love. But while I love some parts of marketing and some parts of, like, building an audience, most of it can go suck an egg. And, like, the minute (laughs) that I don't have to do that anymore, I will stop doing those things, doing this big COVID thing. And all my clients basically were just like, I don't have money to pay you for your marketing services anymore. And I was like, thank God I can stop doing frigging marketing now, like for other people and just focus on doing it for myself or focus on going back to writing. So this pernicious idea that like the only way to get is by hustling works really well at the beginning. I say like do 10 years of work in a year. Like it's not much different. Like you're going to have to hustle pretty hard in that first year. The problem is that like that becomes the norm when the real success is under leveraging yourself so that when the next thing comes, that is so good that you can't give up, that you must do it, that you can hustle hard for that little amount of time again. I just did a bunch of virtual summits over the past few months. I was under leveraged when the pandemic started, and it allowed me to be like, yes, I'm going all in on these virtual summits for the next two months, they're going to suck. But when I get to the end, it's going to have given me so much value. And that value will contain for the rest of my life. If I had continued with those virtual summits once a month, I would have just been over leveraged. And I never would have been able to see the next thing. And now my goal is to take what I've learned on those virtual summits and like, just keep it in my back burner until like, the next opportunity presents itself and go back to under leveraging myself and doing the stuff that I have to do to survive and to grow a little by little, knowing that the thing that's going to take me to the next level is something I've not done yet. Because if I could get to the next level doing the thing that I was already doing, I'd have gotten there already. The problem with most entrepreneurs is they're always staying at the same level because they're so over leveraged that they cannot take advantage of the thing that will take them to the next level, whether that's a course or doing these podcast appearances or whatever it is. And you can't expect everything to take you to the next level because that would be nuts. But you can, if you're not under leveraged, in so much as you can then go and do the thing that you have to go to be over leveraged. If you can't get there because you don't have time, you will never get to the next level. It will be impossible because the thing that is going to take you to the next level is the thing that you have not done yet. Yeah, you're definitely right.
0: I think everything is like 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 a ladder, like steps. You have to take the step. You have to learn what it takes to be at that step and to make it happen. And then you have to learn how to delegate it and get rid of it so that other people can do it So you can find the next thing and you can keep growing it. I mean, that's the only way you grow is one step at a
1: time, right? I mean, I think you can leap like two or three or 10 steps at a time. But Mm -hmm. like you cannot be doing your work 20 hours a day and expect to get to the next level because the thing that got you there is not going to get you to the next step. And if you're happy at that step, I don't see how you could possibly be happy working 20 hours a day. But like, hey, brother, if that is your success, then like go for it but most people want the next thing, but they're doing the current thing without Mm -hmm. ever preparing for the next thing. So it might not be delegating. It might just be like flat out cutting. Frankly, most stuff doesn't need to be delegated. It just needs to be cut completely Mm -hmm. or done with more intention and thus quicker and more productively. I can count on one hand how many emails I get in a day that I need to respond to. I just cut out most emails. I do most of my work on Facebook Messenger or for text. Maybe 10 times a week, I get an email that needs to be responded to. You don't have to miss everything. Another thing that entrepreneurs do so much is they fear letting go of anything. The doubling down on the things that are working really well is the success. It's a little scarier because you now have more high value pieces that you're working on but when you over time you accumulate these like very highly productive things that you're doing that are very highly leveraged and then you have to make a decision Like, where am I going now? Am I willing to put the effort in for a new thing? So I'll give you an example. I write comics is what I'm known for. I'm known for comics and anthologies, but I desperately want people to take me seriously as an author. I've written 18 novels. They don't sell at nearly the volume that they should, but I know that novels take a lot longer. So I am willing to put in the slog of work and make almost nothing on novels now because I know it takes just time and it takes you figuring out the market and novels have nothing but competition so you just have to do more and have more time to do it I really want to do novels and so I'm willing to say this is going to take so much longer but at the end hopefully I'll be able to actually make a living doing the novel part of this as well as the comic part so it's not just like everything that you do has to be hyper leveraged there is room but you have to know that like the juice is worth with the squeeze. So tell me a little bit more about the
0: move to books. And you talked about not worrying like if one book fails, move on to the next project keep working. What's the learnings there and what
1: happened there as you released your first book? You know, novels are kind of odd. Writing is kind of odd because it takes you time just to figure out what your unique selling proposition is. And Mm -hmm. the reason that nobody would care if you were gone from those things is because there's no unique selling proposition there. Like there's nothing unique about the thing you're doing in that space. The things that are going to be the high value things for you are the things that you uniquely do in that space. So, for instance, me is building an audience from scratch. Like, that's just a unique thing. With novels, it's the same thing. You know, I spent a lot of time writing a lot of different genres, mystery and thriller and sci-fi and dystopian and a lot of things And I felt like I had like kind of unique pieces of that together. But where I really seemed to excel was fantasy and specifically Mm -hmm. mythological fantasy. And I had this way of like smashing all of these genres together that I hadn't seen before. And I can write a great dystopian book. I have. It's called The Vessel. If you love dystopian, like go Mm -hmm. read The Vessel. You will love it. It is very traditionally dystopian, which is great. Like I can go and write a really good mystery novel or a thriller, but my unique selling proposition in writing is mythology and mythological fantasy and taking mythology and like smashing it with other stuff and like making it new and interesting and unique. But that took me a bunch of projects. The problem when you first start is like, you don't know what your unique selling proposition is. You don't know Mm -hmm. what it is. Like you don't know what people want from you. So you got to kind of do a bunch of stuff and be like, hey, yep. is it this thing that they want? Is it this thing? Is it, am I a lawyer? Am I a doctor? Am I a handyman? Like, am I a course creator? Am I like, what? I don't know. Like, I'm just going to try a bunch of crap and see yep. like what it is. And then some things catch on. And that is when you double down. Yep. So that first part of your career really is, as Gary Vee says, like about hustling and trying a bunch of different stuff, but mostly because you have no idea what's going to work. And I don't care what any mentor says. They have no idea what's going to work for you because I mentored mm-hmm. a lot of people and every single time I'm surprised. So the lesson I think for entrepreneurship is just, you have to try a bunch of different stuff. This is yep. the hustle, that original Gary V thing about hustling all the time. I don't know if you've got to be on every platform or anything, but like, you've got to be trying a whole bunch of different stuff, mainly because you don't know what the audience is going to resonate with. Even if they tell you usually yeah. they're wrong. Usually they're telling mm-hmm. you what they will buy, but what they will actually buy is very different than the thing that you're trying to sell them. And eventually, yeah. you'll figure that out, and hopefully in doing so you'll also figure out like what lights you up. Entrepreneurship sucks until you kind of have that together because like the minute that you have those two things together, you then like have a reason for living. So that is what I learned from like releasing a bunch of books.
0: Yeah. And so it was really just what inspired you to really go back and to
1: want to be more consulting and help self-development for creatives. No, I've always done that self-development for creatives. I started it because it was an ancillary byproduct of wannabe press. So wannabe press was the company that I was using to build my career. And a lot of people were asking me questions and the complete creative allowed me to productize a lot of the things, or if they don't want to look at for free, I have hundreds of blog posts about like how to build a career. And like, I don't have to now waste my time giving one-on-one advice to people. I can just say, go look at the site it has got hundreds of articles. And if you don't want to do Do that, that's okay. I don't like one-on-one consulting because it takes me away from writing. The complete creative is a wonderful experience for me. It is, though, the ancillary byproduct of my writing career. It is not the jet fuel of my writing career. It is the byproduct of it. And from it, I've helped thousands of creatives because I'm doing it. I'm like literally learning and then telling them the exact thing that worked. And I'm comparing it with like all the other courses that I've taken. I hope it doesn't sound like I hate that part of my business because I love it. It's great. (laughs) I love helping creatives. But even if it's not the main part of your business, Mm -hmm. I think that everybody could benefit from saying, oh, you want to like learn what I'm doing? Well, here is this guide that I wrote.
0: Yeah. You know what I think was really cool too when I was reading some of your blogs and stuff is you're vulnerable in it too. You don't just talk about the successes. You talk about like, you know, working to break even and yeah, you really do give insight to the process. So everyone talks about their biggest success. Some people talk about their biggest failures, but nobody talks about like the day to day in between.
1: You know, yeah, that was minutes. what really affected me when I started it, honestly, is back when I started, the, people weren't even talking about their biggest failures. It was just their biggest yep. success. So you were like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that's so that's a a huge nugget. success. Yep. And mm-hmm. then people start talking about their biggest failure. But like, what they don't talk about is the freaking drudgery of every day. Like, It is yep. a drudge and a drag. And like, my dad died in 2017. And what Sorry, I learned man. from that experience, when mm-hmm. hundreds of people would come by and console me, was every one of those people was having the best year of their life and like their dad died at the same time. Like from the outside, it was like, wow, like you're killing it. People like that had shows bought or like got staffed or like had huge Kickstarters or whatever it was, like almost inevitably that was the year that like everything went to pot. And it was really eye-opening to see that success and failure are not binary. It's not like, wow, this was a success and this was a failure. And then the rest of it was like, great. They're almost intrinsically tied together every moment of every day. And it's important to kind of understand that every win probably also has like a loss attached to it. And every loss has a win. I am very open by saying I ran three Kickstarters after my, my, my first two Kickstarters did pretty well. Um, $5,000 and $8,000. My next three did three, two, and then Mm $1,000 respectively. That's not the way to go as a business. It taught me who my ideal customer was. It taught me what they really wanted from me. And it taught me what people wouldn't buy from me. And from Mm -hmm. that, I made our biggest book ever monsters and other scary shit, which went from a thousand dollars six months later to raising $27,000 on Kickstarter. Wow. So it was a huge failure, but it was a massive success also because Mm -hmm. I like learned everything about my audience on the other side of it. Uh, last year I had like eight really bad launches and I was suicidal. Like I was literally ready to just end it all right around this time last year. And I learned how to separate my success or failure from my self-worth. And like, it was a huge deal for me to be able to do that. And it's helped me my mood swings and it's helped everything else that I was able to exercise those two pieces together. But then we came back, I went back to first principles. I went back to like three most popular products ever, Mm -hmm. put them all back into production. And we had our three of our biggest launches ever. So we went from like the worst launches to the biggest launches, turned those big failures into massive success all of that came from failure. And yep. from the successes came my cockiness. Like when I ended mm-hmm. the se- that second book, I was so cocky that like they would, people would buy <laughs> anything from me, that I yep. put out like things that were totally against and antithetical to the nature of like what people had bought for me in the past. And then I was like complaining that like, why won't people buy this thing? Don't they see how amazing I am? The success bred failure, the failure bred success. They all cross-pollinate I mean, it's it's nice to be able to say like, okay, like this is working, this is not working, but Mm -hmm. you know, we all have KPIs that we measure. I learned a long time ago that the key performance indicators that matter for me had nothing to do with the amount of money that we made. It Mm -hmm. had to do with the amount of quality conversations I had in a day or in a week or in a month. And if I could just have good quality conversations with a bunch of people and maybe do it at scale and podcasts or with virtual summits, The thing that really matters to me is the reason I got into business, which was like to get people to read my work and then to have cool conversations with other creators. And those two pieces, if I can just do that, the rest of it seems to work itself out as long as I am additionally putting out new work, getting better when I put out that work and finding new people for that work in different avenues. Yeah. I really wanted to have
0: a conversation with you today about summit. Yeah. yeah.
1: So good news about that is I have a whole 10,000 word blog post about oh, the complete com forward slash virtual conference. And it literally lists everything that I did from start to finish on those virtual conferences. Perfect. Uh, and that is one thing that's great about like having that repository because. Yep. Like, I remember when I first came out with my book, uh, How to Build Your Creative Career, people would ask me questions. They'd be like, it's great, I have a book on it. And they'd be like, okay. And if they bought it, I'd be like, okay, sorry, what was your question? And if they didn't, I'd be like, okay, well, you don't value me for $20. Like, I'm not gonna waste my time dealing Mm -hmm. with you now. We talked about productivity a long time ago at the beginning of this conversation. And part of it is being nice to future you. I took that two days right after the virtual summits to like write that article. And now for the rest of my life, future Russell doesn't have to like talk about virtual summons he doesn't want to or audience building Mm -hmm. or Kickstarter, any of that stuff. I think that that's one way that entrepreneurs can be much more efficient is they spend a lot of time going through the same information constantly instead of just being like, hey, before our meeting, can you just go through this talk and it will inform everything. And then we can Mm -hmm. cut 10 meetings down to one. Yep. And you still pay me the same thousand dollars, but we're now doing it in an hour instead of 10 hours.
0: Yep. So I do have one question. So when you're looking at bringing in someone else's writing and publishing it through Wannabe, what do you look for? I know you talked in the past on other podcasts. Sometimes like publishers will say that they can't sell this book, right? Because they're, their audience, they don't think it is a match or something. But beyond like audience, what do you look for in a writer or in
1: their writing? Ooh, this really is really speaks, interesting. Yeah. So almost nobody meets my threshold for writing. So I'm just going to cut that out. <laughs> I actually don't publish other people's work anymore unless they've been in our anthologies. So this, up, this right. is a great thing for a <laughs> publisher on a publisher side or an editor to think about like, what is the way by which you evaluate the creators who are coming in? Because talent is only one piece. The real piece is how will your audience react to them? How will they do at promoting? Will they be on time? So for us, we develop these anthologies. The two of them you can see behind me, Cthulhu is Hard to Spell, one and two. And we find new and established creators that we want to work with and we test them. We give them a few pages in an anthology, two, four, six, or eight pages, and then we see if they're on time. We see if their stuff's going to blow me away. We see like what the audience liked most, which new artist the art the audience liked most, and then we see who actually has a good attitude. And those four things are way more important than the writing. I do need to light up when I see the writing or the art, but I mostly am looking for somebody who I can stand for the next. Hopefully lifetime, because hopefully I'll be publishing more and more and more of your work. But only people who've been in our anthologies are allowed to submit to us. Most of those people I even I won't accept because I have seen their work and I've seen their work ethic and I'm not willing to work with those with people without like the kind of work ethic that I'm looking for. And just being a reliable human, being a reliable human who's not a dick is vastly undervalued. Yep,
0: definitely. Two last questions. We're almost to the end here. If there's one thing from this conversation you really want people to take away, what's that one thing? And lastly, just where can everyone go to learn more from you?
1: Sure. So I said it a little bit before. The thing that has really affected me the most in the past year is learning how to decouple your self-worth from your success or failure. It is so tempting to hitch your ride to the self-worth train when you're on your way up. But I promise you, you're going to peak. You may not peak forever, but like at some point you're going to peak and come back down and then peak again. And then, and every time you peak and come back down, you're riding the failure train back down. And that is when bad things happen for entrepreneurs who have a higher than normal rate of suicide and mental problems and such. So it's important to not say you are a success or a failure, but to say, I am a person who failed doing this or succeeded doing this. Hitching your right to the success train can make you a dick because you suddenly think that your shit doesn't stink. But riding the failure train back down is like really depressing. So it's better to just learn how to to understand that your self-worth is intrinsic to you being a human. And you have the same self-worth as Bill Gates and as other famous humans and as also the hobo who sits on the street. It is intrinsic in the whole package of being a human that is my number one thing. If you want to learn more about my magic, mythology, and monsters, like if you like mythology, magic, and monsters, you're going to love the godsverse. It's a universe where all the gods are real. They're just kind of dicks. And uh, the first book, and Demons Followed Behind Her, is completely free on all platforms. You can check it out. You will know very quickly within one chapter if you love it or if it's not your jam. If you like the first chapter, you're going to like the whole God's verse, even though it takes place over 13,000 years with a bunch of main characters. If you are an entrepreneur, then go check out The Complete Creative. I have my own podcast with almost 200 episodes where I interview creators about how they built and sustain their creative business. It's quite good, if I do say so myself. We dive deep into topics, just like we did on this. I bring on doctors also and advertising executives and all sorts of people that kind of bring creative people, but really just how to lead a complete creative life, how to like have a better mindset, how to create better things and how to like sell those things, which any entrepreneur can really like learn from. There is creativity in every bit of entrepreneurship. I also have free courses. I have a free novel course, a free audience building course, a free creative business course, a free Kickstarter course, all on that site. Yes, they do try and upsell you into another thing, but like the course itself is absolutely free and absolutely valuable. And so thecompletecreative.com if you are an entrepreneur and russellnolte.com if you like mythology, monsters, and magic.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Russell. And I look forward to having you on again soon. Me too.